But right now we are starting with what has been a bit of a controversial subject, to say the least, talking about school liaison officers and bringing them back to Vancouver schools. And Kasari Govender joins us now on the line to talk more about this. Kasari is the Human Rights Commissioner of BC. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. My pleasure. Uh, I know you have written a letter and you have voiced concerns about this, and we are expecting that the Vancouver School Board, now that the new board is is in place, they are set to vote on a motion that would reinstate what they're describing as a a revised and reimagined version of this program. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm calling for uh, the end to school liaison officer programs, SLO programs, unless and until there is credible research done in our context here in BC, or at least in Canada, about the impact of these programs, particularly on racialized youth. We really don't have that research and we don't have the support. Uh, We don't have uh, evidence-based support to have these programs in our schools. But wasn't that one of the reasons given or a main reason given as to why they were phased out? Uh, That's right. And I think we have, you know, we do have some compelling evidence that these programs cause harm. Uh, What we do have is some important studies from the U.S. showing the harm of these programs, that they have the opposite of of what of their intended effect on on black youth, on indigenous youth, on other racialized youth by making them feel less safe in their schools. Uh, We also have really good evidence here in B.C. that certain policing practices have a really disproportionate impact on racialized communities. So if you know that your family is much more likely to be subject to police scrutiny, much more likely to be criminalized, then you have a different relationship with police. And we need to take all these things into account when we're making these decisions. And that's been talked about a lot, the the different relationship with with police and for the reasons that you just mentioned there. Uh, Does it not, though, also open the door and again... Maybe it doesn't look the same as it did when it was in place for decades, but doesn't it open the door in that this is supposed to be a scenario where maybe if you do uh, have a strained relationship, maybe if you do have a fear of police, this is what is supposed to be a really positive relationship and a way of maybe uh, showing that it can be different? I think the key here is, is let's do that research then. Um, We just don't have that research at the moment. There haven't been researchers that have engaged with with young people directly impacted. Let's talk to those young people. Let's figure out how to uh, it, whether this is a good idea at all. And if it is, how to do it in a way that doesn't put their safety um, on the line. Uh, But how does having a school liaison officer put someone's safety on the line? Yeah, it's an important question, and I think there's two key components that emerge from the U.S. literature. Again, understanding that the context here is different, which is why we need specific research here. But in the U.S., there's two pieces to it. One is that it makes people feel less safe. So again, that's really related to, you know, we know, for example, in Vancouver, that an Indigenous man is 17 times more likely to be arrested than a non-Indigenous man in Vancouver. Well, if you're an Indigenous family, probably you're going to feel less safe around police than a non-Indigenous family. Those that flows. So there's that psychological safety piece. The other piece that emerges from the U.S. literature, which is important for us to pay attention to, is the ways in which people are, uh, the young people are disciplined by police in their schools. And the evidence in the U.S. shows that racialized youth are more likely to be disciplined in that context. So it, ha- it could have a direct impact on their experiences in schools in that way as well. And I get what you're saying, too, about the fact that we need the literature, we need the research showing exactly what's happening in B.C., because it is very different, is it not, in B.C. or even in Canada compared to the United States? 
there are really key differences. There's key differences in how our schooling system works. There's key differences in how our criminal justice system works. But one of the differences is that the racism isn't always on its on quite on the surface in the way that I think it is in the states. I think as Canadians, we like to think uh, that our human rights are are much more respected in our communities. Um, but sometimes the data undermines that assumption. In the in Toronto, for example, there was some important research conducted by the Toronto Human Rights or Ontario Human Rights Commission. That it showed that black men uh, were, were um, just as likely uh, to be shot fatally by police in Toronto as in major cities in the U.S. Well, I think that's a statistic that would, would surprise many people. So our situation may be quite different, uh, but we also need to be able to have the evidence to back that up. And when we talk about, and, and some of the reasons and outlined in your letter as well, uh, like you said, that, that it, can be, it can have an impact on Indigenous, uh, Black or other racialized students, uh, not all police officers are white. It, it, it is a very diverse group. What about the, the idea that we're not talking about putting only white officers into schools? We're talking about a, a scenario, a program that would have Indigenous police officers, would have would have people, a, a diverse group of officers. Does that make a difference? Diversity is really important for addressing human rights issues. There's no question, especially diversity in positions of authority. But it doesn't change the, the institutional uh, function and institutional role. So when we're talking about racism and policing. We're not talking about individuals perpetrating racism necessarily. We're talking about system systemic discrimination. So we're talking about how it shows up in those statistics and those numbers. Um, That isn't necessarily the result of any one police officer's bias. It's about how the institution as a whole works. Uh, There still have been, uh, as far, even though the program, the liaison officer program was stopped, there still have been many scenarios, I believe, where police officers do work with the school system, whether it's uh, gang uh, assemblies or information sessions on uh, the dangers of gang life, uh, for one example, uh, other pure kind of peer groups where police are involved. Uh, is, Is that better in that there is an involvement and, but it's not an actual officer that is stationed in the school or that is the liaison for that school or or do you see a scenario where there is some police student interaction um, I think it is different. I think that what we're talking about right now is that more sustained relationship, but it may still have the same impacts. Depends how those interactions happen. I know that I can say anecdotally that uh, my child is a young child in elementary school, and uh, came home and told me about the police visit, and it was entirely uh, his only reporting was about tasers and guns. So you know, it depends on how that visit folds out. Um, there is no. Uh, I'm not objecting to discussions around the criminal justice system happening in our schools and understanding the law and the rule of law and how that operates. I think those can be really positive discussions with students and productive conversations. It's about um, police officers having a presence in schools that disproportionately impacts certain students. Uh, so with the Vancouver School Board then set to vote, and this is a school board with an ABC majority that campaigned saying they wanted to bring back the program. Is there room, do you think, then to bring back or, like you said, find that research or do that research and bring back a program that maybe is more widely acceptable? Uh, my, my recommendation really is focused on that research. So, yes, I do think it's possible to do research and let's find out. You know, the, one of the surest ways to guard against human rights issues and violations is to make sure the decisions we're making are evidence-based. 
Um, and so that's that's what we're calling for here. It's a it's a pretty reasonable request that I think the school board uh, should be paying close attention to, and thinking through. If we don't have the evidence to back this up, let's let's take a pause and do that evidence and really put the experiences of racialized youth at the center to come up with a system that's actually going to work for our young people to actually make them safer. All right. Kasari Gavender, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for being on the show today. Thank you. We were just talking with BC's Human Rights Commissioner and Kasari Gavender saying that more research is needed before or if there is any return of a school liaison program in schools, also recommending the programs be ended by all school districts unless they can demonstrate an evidence-based <clears throat> need for them that cannot be met in some other way. I'm curious your thoughts on the school liaison program. Do you think they should be, be brought back in Vancouver? The new Vancouver School Board set to vote on a motion that would reinstate a version of that program. It's a program that was ended last year. Let's see what you're saying on the open lines about this. And Lisa in New Westminster, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, Our school district got rid of our school liaison officers, and it was the biggest mistake. We had a lovely person that came in. His name was Constable G. He was amazing. The kids loved him. Since that has happened, my child has been sexually assaulted with a weapon, videotaped, as well as sexually humiliated on three different occasions. It is a big mistake to get rid of this. That's awful. I am so sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's very upsetting. Uh, Very upsetting. Are there any plans in New Westminster to bring this back, or have you talked to any any of the school board, uh, the trustees, about this? I believe that it is not coming back. And what do you think the difference then, having Constable G in the school, what kind of a presence was Constable G? He was an amazing um, school liaison officer. He would come to all the school events. The kids loved him, absolutely loved him. He, you know, would get there and he would interact with the kids and formed an amazing bond with them. They'd actually come out and they would talk to him. He was incredible. He retired. And then shortly after that, the new liaison officer happened, and then we ended up with COVID. So after that, the liaison officer program was halted. All right. Well, Lisa, I'm sorry to hear that. I can hear in your voice uh, that uh, that you are not pleased or happy with that decision. But thank you for calling us. Okay, thank you. All right. And keep the liaison officers. This is a mistake. These kids are not getting the education that they need about right and wrong. They're not getting it from home. They're not getting it from social media. This is very upsetting. All right, Lisa, thank you for that. So Lisa's saying uh, keep the school liaison officers or if they have been removed, bring them back. Let's go to Derek in Port Coquitlam. Derek, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I just want to say the minister seemed very well-spoken and very intelligent woman, and you held her feet to the fire pretty good. I really liked your questions you asked her. But why is she comparing us to the United States? Totally different social aspect of policing and the justice system and and she's talked about the policing at uh, the policing being a systemic issue as far as racism is concerned well we're not talking about the whole police department in a school we're talking one officer and like the previous caller said that officer develops a relationship with the people or kids and parents in that school i think it's a ridiculous thing that they remove them and and you know it just baffles me how some some of these people get on this tangent and just push these things through. Is it just because they, they want to be the person with their name on this new rule or what? 
All right. Uh, Yeah, Derek, thank you for that call. Appreciate that. I also uh, was a bit curious, and I think the reason that uh, the Human Rights Commissioner was using U.S. information and U.S. research, as she said, is that we don't have the research here. We've not done the same kind of research in B.C. or in Canada compared to the U.S., but I do agree with you. It is not the same uh, situation. It's not the same uh, demographic. It's not the same uh, same balance of power, for lack of a better word, when we're talking about law enforcement and school liaison office in BC. I would agree. And her, her point to that was, we need the research in BC and we need to see those local numbers. Let's get one more call in there if we can. And Nancy in New West, good afternoon. Hi, Jill. I'm with Lisa. I'm also in the New West School District, although my daughter is obviously a lot older than her daughter is. But uh, when our daughter was in school, they did have a police officer uh, liaison and one day she got herself into a little bit of I'm not going to say trouble it was a misunderstanding she left her jacket in the gym but in her jacket was a bunch of cash that we had give, gotten around the neighborhood for a pizza fundraiser the police officer phoned me and said you know you know what's the story on this what do you know and I said this is the story and he said okay good because we were watching her for selling drugs ah so when she came home, I sat her down and I said, where's your jacket? And she said, at school. And I said, where exactly at school? And she started to cry. And I said, okay, here's why I'm telling you. The police officer phoned because they found your jacket in the gym. It was hanging on the gym teacher's uh, door. And they were afraid that you were selling drugs because you had so much pizza in your, or so much money for the pizza in your pocket. And she was absolutely flabbergasted. We have the best police department in New West. We really do. I believe that they are the good cops that teach people by example how to follow the laws. And I think that was a learning experience that our daughter has kept with her all her life. And I know it affected me positively, too. Bring them back. All right. Nancy, we've only got about 30 seconds. I'm just curious. Were they looking for ID to put give the jacket back? Or how did they find the money in the jacket? Uh, they had a couple of the neighbors had given her checks and they had phoned one of the neighbors and said, so, you know, here's what happened. Why did, why were you giving Nicole Flynn a check? And, um, so that's how they got a hold of me. Hmm. Interesting that they thought though, and sorry, I'm not making light of it, but that she was selling drugs and neighbors were writing checks to buy the drugs from her, which, well, seems... you know, it was, it, I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, no, that's true. But, that is true. Um, I was really glad that rather than pulling her in and saying, you know, what's, you know, you're under arrest or whatever, that they took the time to phone me and say, hey, you know, here's what happened. What can you tell us? And not only was it a positive interaction for her, it was a real learning experience for all of us. And I'm, I'm very proud of that, that interaction. All right, Nancy. So, you know, I can't be the only happy parent out there. <laughs> very true. Nancy, we're right out of time. Thanks for your call. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. We are now taking a look at housing in Vancouver. And Councillor Christine Boyle says she is returning her non-market housing motion to Council. And this is all with an aim to reduce barriers and to get more affordable housing built in the city. Well, Councillor Boyle joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, when you talk about, so returning this to council, what specifically are you going to be bringing forward? 
the motion is asking council to, as you said, reduce barriers and deepen affordability for co-op, nonprofit, and supportive housing across Vancouver. And specifically, uh, it comes out of suggestions and recommendations from the community housing sector, from the folks who build uh, and and run affordable housing across the city, um, that we delegate final approval for these projects to staff uh, to speed up the process. So right now, the a majority of non-market and affordable housing projects go through a multi-year public hearing process. Uh, and what we continue to hear from uh, from community housing leaders is that that process adds not just years, but, but hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in costs uh, and a lot of risk and uncertainty to projects, particularly now as... Uh, as costs are rising so quickly, a delay of an extra year can see the cost of a project go up significantly and um, and sometimes mean that it's not possible to build at all. So uh, this approach comes out of the advice of experts uh, and will make it easier for us to build the type of housing we know that we need more of. And when you talk about then the approval would go to staff, so then it wouldn't come to council and councillors wouldn't vote on it? Yeah, so what we have seen over recent years is uh, an an over-reliance, I think, on spot rezonings, on uh, having council vote on individual projects, and instead this is looking at uh, housing policy more broadly. So if we agree that we need more affordable housing, we need more housing that... um, baristas and healthcare workers and young families and seniors on pensions and people with disabilities can afford so that folks can afford to stay in Vancouver. Uh, we agree we need that housing. We need to build it more quickly. And this approach would uh, would speed that process up by having council um, make decisions at a wider policy level rather than bringing each individual process to a public hearing. And I'll, and I'll add uh, there's still opportunities for the community to engage. Neighbors would still be notified and there would still be an opportunity or, or more than one opportunity for input. It just wouldn't require a, a final public hearing for each project. Right. Okay. Uh, the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, in part of his platform, his campaign, it was the 333 and one permit approval system saying that uh, within three days, uh, renovation applications would be approved, uh, townhouses and single-family homes within three weeks, and multifamily and multi-rise buildings within three months. Uh, I would imagine, does does the type of housing you're talking about fit in with the multifamily and multi-rise buildings or mid-rise buildings? I think there's strong uh, alignment between these two approaches. What I heard the mayor say uh, throughout the campaign was a desire to um, to speed up the city's processes and make sure the city isn't a barrier to slowing down or preventing more housing choices, particularly more affordable ones. So the 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 three three one is it the permitting proposal is about permitting and uh, and what I'm proposing is around zoning, but they uh, align well. Um, And I think there's a lot of overlap in meeting this shared goal, which is about more affordable housing for, for families and working people across Vancouver.
So do you need a separate motion to do that then if there is overlap? And given that the the ABC Vancouver party does have the majority on council, are you concerned at all that this motion might not be approved? But there is a lot in this motion that, like you say, does kind of align and, and is already kind of on the table. Uh, we, we need both, absolutely. And so I, I look forward to supporting that permitting work. I've been supportive of streamlining permitting work through the whole past council, but this is a, a separate ask that's also important and uh, and wouldn't be covered specifically in the permitting approach uh, that, that I've been hearing from ABC, but is something that ABC supported in the campaign. Um, a local group called Women Transforming Cities put out a campaign survey for all candidates in the election, and this was one of their asks. Would you support delegating approval for non-market co-op supportive housing uh, to staff and um, and the new mayor and all of the ABC councillors committed during the election to this approach? They also campaigned on doubling the number of co-op units across the city, and uh, and this approach will make it much more likely that we're able to achieve that campaign promise, too. All right. Well, we will wait and see what happens with the motion. Uh, Councillor Christine Boyle, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Anytime. Thanks for the invite. Well, we heard from the Premier yesterday that rules around foreign-trained doctors are going to be loosened in B.C. As well, Health Minister Adrian Dix was speaking earlier today on the Mike Smith Show, talking about that announcement and also what we can expect to hear from the Minister a bit later, or for the, uh, the Premier, that is, a bit later today. One of the challenges we face is, um, is ensuring that we maintain standards well, not using those standards as an impediment for people who can come in here and contribute. We have thousands now, right now in BC, of internationally trained doctors who do an excellent job. Many of your listeners have a, a doctor who's trained internationally in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, and other jurisdictions. Well, um, we, need, uh, we need to reduce the impediments while maintaining standards, and I think that's the balance we struck uh, yesterday. Dr. Brian Conway is joining us now, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on this announcement, uh, kind of loosening the restrictions when it comes to foreign trained doctors, trying to get those numbers of doctors up in this province? Well, it's a step in the right direction. I think we've always known that there's some highly trained healthcare providers, physicians and others, who acquired their training elsewhere and who aren't getting licensed here in British Columbia. Incorporating them into the workforce is an important step, but the problem with our healthcare system is far broader than that. And, and how so? So this will help in, in one arm or one, one section of the healthcare system. Where do you think maybe the priority should also be? Well, I think that right now uh, we need more doctors, and this is going to help, though not in the short term. To uh, have a million British Columbians who don't have family physicians get family physicians is going to require a thousand or two thousand new doctors, and this is going to supply about another sixty or so per year beginning next year. And the new physician assistant program or associate physician program, this is someone that will require some supervision. So it's unclear how this is going to help us. So we, in in, in the definitive way, so I think we just need to build that up. Other than that, wait times 
for procedures like MRIs are approaching a year in many cases. Access to specialty consultations that are urgent are taking many months, and some specialists are booking into 2024. So we need to look at the whole system and try to design some short-term solutions to reduce uh, some of the uh, more acute problems, but also design some longer-term solutions that address all the needs. Uh, when you talk about MRIs, uh, um, th- that number seems, uh, and I'm not questioning your, your numbers, but we often hear that's the one that the health minister often brings out as an example on where the province is actually doing really well in reducing the wait times, having some uh, some uh, MRIs going around the clock. But are we? it sounds like we're still seeing significant waits. Well, we are still seeing significant waits. We've made we've made some progress, and unless you you sort of ask to have the procedure done sooner uh, than uh, than just uh, sending in a request and waiting for an answer, it still is uh, incredibly long. We're not meeting the standard. We need to to, to really do well on that. But uh, some of the measures that are announced are are very good measures that are going to to generate some new physicians, but we need to think about how to do a little bit more, a little bit more quickly to address the needs of British Columbia, especially those that can't access health care today, that need it today, and that need longitudinal care that they can't access at all. Uh, You touched on this as well, the other kind of licensing that's going to be put in place, and this is so internationally trained doctors who aren't eligible to go into the practice-ready assessment program, this new program that allows them to to become associate physicians, and it will be a new license, and as you mentioned, this is, they'll be able to care for patients under the direct the direction and supervision of an attending physician in, say, an acute care setting. Uh, is that something, though, do you think that is going to ease the pressure on, on the doctors who are overseeing, or will that make a difference? Well, it may make a difference as long as the doctors that are supervising these new uh, associate physicians will be able to increase the number of patients that they could see in a given day and still provide the supervision that will be required by the system. And hopefully these associate physicians will become full-time physicians after a certain period of time and contribute in a more fulsome way to addressing, uh, addressing the need. But even if both of these programs work as well as Minister and Premier seem to have stated they will, and I, and I have good confidence that that is the case, this is still going to, to be a, a solution that is, that is partial in terms of having us access family physicians. And it's not something that will uh, see the light of day in the immediate future, which is uh, uh, something that we, we need to try and address, uh, address in parallel with these programs. Right. Is there something else that could be done, though, as far as uh, I think, you know, we understand that, that tr- doctors need training and they need to get up to, to the position where they can be fully practicing in B.C. Is there anything else that could be done more immediately? Well, these, these are our ambitious programs going from 32 to 96. My sense is there's many more foreign-trained physicians that would be eligible for the practice-ready program. And it would be useful, I think, to, to figure out if this can be ramped up even more quickly to meet some of the, uh, some of the immediate needs. We need to look at encouraging physicians to engage in longitudinal practice. Some measures were announced in terms of financial incentives and others, but we need to ramp that up and, and try to, to bridge the gap. There's a million British Columbians that don't have a family physician, and, and that, that should, be, uh, should be our uh, 
a major focus of the interventions that are being planned and, and try to do it a bit more quickly than uh, the uh, well-meant measures uh, will, uh, to me, uh, produce in terms of an outcome. Uh, and Dr. Conway, we only have about a minute left, but uh, your thoughts quickly, if, if we can, on where we are right now, as far as we know, there are long waits in hospitals. We are going further into cold and flu season. How are things going? Well, things are going okay. I think people still need to follow the rules, get all your shots, uh, stay home if you're sick, uh, wear a mask when it's appropriate to do so, and try to get the healthcare system through a winter that could be difficult while we try to implement measures to improve the healthcare system as a whole, improving access to primary care as all British Columbians need. All right, Dr. Brian Conway, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill. Bye-bye. As you've been hearing on the news, the future of policing once again set to to be the center of debate. A report that was requested by the province will be presented at Monday's meeting. That is later today. It outlines the process of potentially transitioning away from a municipal police force. Well, joining us on the line to talk a bit more about this is Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor, as well the Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Councillor Annis, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, have you seen this report? Well, yes, I have seen the report. It just establishes the framework for which uh, we will develop the report and also ask council to appoint uh, two outside uh, individuals who are former RCMP members to uh, participate and write the report. Uh, so this is the, the framework to the, the next report. And I know you have some concerns over how this is kind of playing out and the costs of this. What are your concerns? Well, I have uh, several concerns, but I guess my largest one is at the first real council meeting. When I say by real council meeting, uh, not our swearing in ceremony, council was asked to choose either uh, would they prefer to stay with uh, the Surrey Police Service or go uh, revert back to the uh, RCMP, both of which I think are great police organizations, but we had no facts. We have no idea what this cost is to date. We have no idea really where we are in the transition. So we were asked to make a decision without having the facts on the table and without consulting uh, with the residents of Syria. We know that uh, the residents are very concerned and it's been a very divisive issue in the community. When do you think the report will actually be given to uh, the public safety minister? From what I understand, he's expecting to have it by mid-December, so that would be potentially in a couple of weeks from now, wouldn't it? My understanding is that uh, the two former RCMP members who are going to be writing the report uh, will deliver it to council on December 12th. Uh, One of the things that I am recommending, though, just because I think over the past four years, if we've learned something, it's about transparency and accountability, that we add a third person to this, and that being a forensic accountant that has no you know, bias one way or the other in terms of Surrey Police Service or the RCMP. I think that would be a welcome addition. And what do you think that person would bring that the others don't? Well, they are former RCMP people. They'll be looking at it under the lens of the RCMP, which I think is great. They're both very good Um, uh, well-respected individuals, but I do think we need to have an independent uh, set of eyes look at this for transparency's sake 
and to make sure that, uh, you know, from an accounting perspective, that everything is captured. We totally understand what the processes have been to date and how much has been spent. And I think having an accountant, a forensic accountant do this would really add some transparency to this whole process. Uh, does it come down, you think, then to the money and what has been spent? Because certainly for those that want to keep the Surrey police, one of the arguments is there have been millions of dollars spent and these are not recoverable. These are sunk costs uh, for those who, who say that they want to go back and keep the RCMP. There's a similar a similar argument about, about monies spent. Do you think that is the, the top of mind issue for taxpayers? Well, the top of mind issue should be public safety. But quite frankly, you know, both sides are saying millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent. But even council doesn't have that information. And it's very difficult for residents, other than on a motion, to be able to make a decision. And I think it's so important that we get the facts on the table and make an informed decision either way and then move forward. And once the report then comes to council, and if you're expecting to get that December 12th, would this delay that though, if we now, or if you now want to bring in a third person, a third party on the accounting side of things to do this? I don't think it would, but if it did for the sake of a few weeks, good, because at least we would be operating on facts. And right now we aren't. And I think it's hugely troubling that the residents have not been um, brought into the fold at, in this decision making. And, you know, it's been so controversial here in Surrey and people uh, have very, very, you know, definite opinions about policing in Surrey. And, you know, we haven't been able to put the facts on the table. And I think we need to be able to articulate to the residents how much is it going to cost either way? And how does it impact public safety if we were to go with the Surrey Police Service or to go with the RCMP? And none of that's out there. Uh, we can't even agree on how many Surrey Police Service members have been hired to date. I mean, that's, uh, you know, very, very disappointing. And, you know, we're, here again, we're trying to make decisions, not having facts. Hasn't the Surrey Police Service, though, put out the information? Didn't they put out those numbers as far as the number of officers and the costs until this point a couple of weeks ago? They did, but the numbers differ from what the city is saying. So we need to get to the bottom of it and figure out what the real numbers are. And do you think, I know that there's been talk of of a referendum and that has been shot down, that's not likely to happen or or not going to happen at all. But what do you think of the argument then when you say that residents haven't been consulted, that they were consulted and that's why the civic election went the way that it did? Well, the civic election, I might add, uh, the mayor lock won on just 900 votes. It was a very, very tight race and that did not give her a mandate to switch from back from the Surrey Police Service to the RCMP. People voted for her for a variety of reasons. One, of course, could be, you know, sticking to the RCMP, but there were many other reasons why people would have voted for her or voted for others. It was a very, very close election. And I think she, well, she got somewhere in the area of um, 28% of the total voter turnout. So 72% of the people didn't support Mayor Locke. Uh, that doesn't give you... Uh, You can't call the election a referendum when there's that little of a majority that she got. Right. And and similar then, but for the opposite side, if we look at those numbers for Doug McCallum when he uh, was last voted in as mayor. Uh, so, So not calling that the referendum or saying that that doesn't give somebody the mandate when the numbers are that low. Uh, how do you then, is it this what you're suggesting now in that getting more information and putting it to the public? But if you're doing that, it, it still comes down to the public safety minister making the decision, doesn't it? 
It sure does. In the end of the day, he's got he's got the ultimate authority to decide how we're going to police in the city of Surrey. But I do think he, it would be great if the residents had some input into that report. What is it they're wanting to see in Surrey? What new poli- uh, public safety measures would they like to see in place uh, around policing? And I think that's very important that we engage with them. After all, it's the taxpayers' money that we're spending, and the policing budget on our property taxes is the one of the largest numbers uh, on our bill. I think you know it's not uncommon to pay eight hundred to a thousand dollars each year for policing. So I think when you're paying that kind of money, you should have a say. Could you not ask people that, though, without having all of the, I get what you're saying, the numbers from the Surrey Police Service and the city don't all match up and, and there is a difference. But if the, the priority is public safety, not money, then could you not go and put those questions to the public anyway? I think it's a very complex issue. You know, a decision around who pleases our city shouldn't just be made on money. It should be made on who can do the best job and has the most innovative police service and at what cost. And there's nothing wrong with getting the facts and then making a decision. Uh, So is there anything in the nine-page report that sticks out to you or anything that provides new information or new insight at this point? Not really, other than timelines have have been established when council will see uh, the report uh, from uh, the committee that will be putting the report together, and that being December 12th. Right, okay. And, and so is council then today looking at this report, are you hopeful that council is going to look at your idea or, or are you bringing a motion forward as far as bringing on a third, an accounting position to, to work on that final report? Yes, what I am going to recommend at Council tonight, I'm going to do a friendly amendment to the corporate report and ask that we include this particular uh, position as a third uh, person to be part of the committee. And is there a cost associated with that? Well, there will be uh, not significant in the overall scheme of things. When we're hearing both sides saying it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to go forward or to go backwards, if we have to pay for one additional person to uh, work on this report to ensure that Uh, It's looked at from a broader perspective. I think it's money well spent. All right. We will wait and see what happens with that as well as with the report. Councillor Annis, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.